Hey guys, Press Gallery host Emma Graney here, just with another quick reminder to subscribe. Uh, leave us a five-star rating if you want. That'd be great. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever else you happen to podcast. Um, and if you have any questions, comments, concerns, reach out to me. You can email me, egraney at postmedia.com or find me on Twitter at Emma L. Graney. Enjoy this week's episode with more Australian than usual. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I am your host, Provincial Affairs reporter Emma Graney. It is Friday, November 23, 2018, and this is the Rural Crime and Punishment Edition. With me today, my fellow legislative reporter, Claire Clancy. How are you, mate? I'm great. I love a good pun on a title of a book. So I well know, done. right? Well, you know, I do try and bring up the classics whenever I can. Yep. Keith Drine, dressed like a cowboy. How are you, mate? I, I am. It's not just a cowboy. It's it's a I'm Calgary sorry. outfit. It's in, in, in honor of the Grey Cup this weekend. So. And apparently you're cheering for Calgary? I, I, I am. I grew up in Calgary. So Did you? I did, yeah. That hat is really something. It is, yeah. Have you we, had that hat long? I, it, yeah, this goes back to uh, my youth, my stampede days. <laughs> it is a brown cowboy oh, it hat. It is a brown cowboy hat, it is, yes. And you're wearing a stamps jersey over your work shirt. I am, yes. Very festive. Yes, one one of these days you and, and Yuri could bring in your all blacks jersey. That, that, was, <laughs> that, that was a shot. That was a shot, sorry. <laughs> Our other guest is Yuri Graney. (laughs) Hello. Wow. What a welcome. Thanks, man. You're welcome. Mm. (laughs) Yuri Graney is uh, one of our crime reporters here at the Edmonton Journal. Long-time listener, first-time panelist. Wow. (laughs) Two Grainies in the same studio. This is going to get bad. So So much Australian. It is a lot of Australian. We will try and keep it, uh, I don't know, Canadian enough (laughs) so that y'all can understand what we're saying. I even said y'all. Yeah, that's not Canadian. That's, not that's Canadian. a little bit yeah. Yeah. Dear that me, is. goodness off gracious! Off to a great start, everybody. Yeah, we're going really well. <laughs> okay. Let's kick it off. We're going to talk about rural crime, and that is why I have Yuri here because he has been looking at all the reports and went on a ride along with the RCMP up north a little while ago. So, basically, the UCP, CPC, NDP, you name it, they're on it. They've all got some rural crime strategies on the go. Also, laughs back. Robin Laugh, she's back this week, and we're going to talk about a little bit about the harassment. MLA mystery that's been brewing at the ledge. Finally, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was also back this week, but this time he's in Alberta down in Calgary. Um, Keith, you're from Calgary. Did you feel the shift in the force? <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> so we'll talk about that and uh, a little bit about Alberta, Alberta's finance woes and what Trudeau has to do with that. Okay, first of all, Yuri, you're here to talk about rural crime. We've got reports coming out of our wazoo, mate, haven't we? Uh, yes, <laughs> out of our wazoo. <laughs> That's an Australian. That's a thing, is it? Okay. Uh, yeah, we have. Well, there's there's reports. There's lots of reports. Do you, which report do you want to talk about? <laughs> I can talk about the the CPC report. So give us a quick rundown here. So you now I know you went out on the road with the RCMP at what's sure. near St Paul. Yep, that's right. What was their general kind of feeling about how rural crime is looking in Alberta? Well, I think what is uh, significant for the RCMP is the repeat offenders. Right. And that's that's the that's the big thing about what the RCMP is trying to do, what the province is trying to do. Uh, they're really looking at targeting those repeat offenders. Their their whole thing is they it's ninety percent of the crime is committed by five percent of the people. And so yeah, so they uh, I think it was at the start of this year they came up with ten million dollars in funding, eight the million dollars government, NDP yeah. government, yeah. And so eight million dollars went to the RCMP, two million dollars went to the Crown. And they basically created their their four task units, their four uh, crime reduction 
units. Did you get the impression that um, that it's working? Yes. Uh, that's the impression I get, out, out, especially if they're hanging out with the RCMP out in St. Paul. Uh, you do get a sense that they're on the right uh, on the right mark, I guess. They're, they're, they know their areas. They know what they're supposed to be doing, and they know what the criminals are doing. Um, they've got enough evidence uh, and intelligence uh, even even this early on, that they're actually saying, okay, well, we know how these guys are getting around. We know why they're targeting certain areas, uh, and these is, these are the areas that we need to be focused on. So yeah, there's there's a definite sense that they're moving in the right direction, and I think they're they're on target for this. This program under the under the provincial government has been going what since February or something mm-hmm. like that, I think. So then in the summer, the UCP came out with a rural crime report. They sure did. You um, read that, didn't you? I did read that. Do you have a copy in front of you? I have two copies. I have a CPC one and a UCP one. Which Look is at you all, all prepared. Well, I, I like to be prepared. Mm, good job. Yeah, so basically this goes back to the fall of 2017. Uh, there was a bunch of town halls. Mm-hmm. They went around the province. They went around Alberta and, and spoke with constituents. They spoke with law enforcement. They spoke with a whole bunch of different uh, bodies to get an idea of what the issues are when it comes to rural crime. The UCP report came out in July, I want to say. Let's yeah, have a it was look. over the summer sometime. Yeah, it came out in July. Uh, the CPC came out with their report in October. They're fairly similar. That's, yeah. I think what was really interesting was the fact that uh, when the the MP that I spoke with, Glenn Motts, when he's, I asked... He's a, the CPC MP for where is he down? Medicine Hat, Alberta, isn't he? Medicine right? Hat, yeah. yeah. Uh, so when I was talking to him, I, I asked him, I was like, well, you know, why did you guys decide to go on the road with the UCP? And and he actually said, well, I was oblivious to the fact that they were actually there. <laughs> so I, he I, didn't I, know. I that really. is very interesting. It was a very interesting <laughs> statement, yeah. Uh, and, and they really distanced themselves from the uh, from their report, the, the CPC, that is. That's so interesting because when the UCP did their report, and I spoke with Angela Pitt, who's the justice critic, and about what was in the report and the kind of the political nature of this because of course, the NDP likes to point out that the UCP voted against funds for rural crime during the budget. Angela Pitt says, yeah, 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 but that was just a general vote against overspending in the budget, not specifically rural crime. So fun little aside there. But then Angela Pitt said, yeah, this is going to be a blueprint for what we will do should we form government in 2019. Jerry Motts with the federal conservatives said, no, 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 no. This isn't, no, this isn't our report. It's got our name on it, but that's not our report. It's the it's people's what, report. It's the people's this, report. This is what they heard from the people and they just wanted to write it down and make sure that everybody knew uh-huh. what the people had. The language in the uh, in the actual, in the two documents is quite interesting as well because you look at the UCP and, you know, they're like, these are the recommendations. This is what we're doing. Uh, the CPC document, they have things called opportunities. And Putting it's, that in air quotes, I love that. Yeah, opportunities. And it's, and it's opportunities, but which are essentially recommendations. <laughs> They're just not calling them that? They're just not calling them recommendations. But so it's fair to say it's kind of a less, has less teeth, that report. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah for sure. Keith, are you surprised that the um, federal conservatives went and followed in the footsteps of the UCP and then took an extra four months to come out with something? <laughs> uh, not not too surprising. I mean, I, I think this is, this is going to be uh, an election issue, both in the provincial and, and the federal election. I think jobs in the economy will probably be number one, but rural cl- crime... Uh, could be a close third. And so it's not surprising that they want to kind of get on this bandwagon, even though they're now kind of distancing themselves from this this particular report. It's just interesting to me to hear the narratives. Like we hear Yuri uh, talking to the RCMP who are saying, yeah, our strategy's kind of working now. We're seeing some progress. Uh, the NDP put some funds in. Uh, they're going to address, try to address root causes as well of crime, not just uh, enforcement uh, and monitoring. 
and then you hear the, the conservative side federally and provincially saying, no, this is still an issue. People are still concerned about this. We need to do more. Uh, you know, I think that is going to be an interesting election issue, and it's, you know, who are people going to believe? That's that's the thing. I think there is a perception out there that crime is rising, that crime is still a major problem in rural areas. Does the perception match the reality? I think that's going to be a big question. And we'll see if in the March budget, too, there's more funds allocated from the NDP towards rural crime, because oh, it, it will be a a political issue in the campaign. So. Absolutely, yeah. And there's there's some really interesting recommendations in in both reports. The the CPC report, especially they're, when they're talking about the increased use of monitoring bracelets for repeat offenders, something that was echoed in the UCP report as well. Or maybe the other way around. Or the other the way UCP around. Came out first. Yeah. <laughs> um. And but then there's other ones like uh, increasing funding to, for legal aid at a federal level. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which will actually, the whole point of that is the private lawyers who are normally being involved in legal aid are probably charging a little bit too much. So they want like more duty lawyers from legal aid to be brought in. Uh, and they also talk about giving tax credits for people for installing security systems mm. on their houses, mm. which also really interesting idea. And But not necessarily ones you'd associate with conservative parties. Like Absolutely. Yeah. Legal right. aid funding and yeah, yeah, those priorities. It's interesting. Yeah. But there's there's a lot of there's a lot of recommendations in here where they're talking about sorry objectives sorry opportunities opportunities sorry opportunities where they where they're talking specifically about you know changes to the criminal code changes to the corrections act which can be done uh, you obviously need to be in power and I don't think the the liberals are, are going to be making any changes any anytime soon one of the other interesting things in that report was. Basically, this it, it seemed almost like an undercurrent of kind of a swipe at the RCMP saying they're not spending their money properly, that they're not doing anything. Pro- so we should just, you know, bugger it, get rid of them and just bring in a provincial police force like the OPP, like in Ontario, right? Yeah, also also very, very interesting take on what, what's happening with the RCMP. I don't, I don't know how the RCMP would respond. Oh, badly, to, I would think. I, I would imagine pretty badly. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, they, they are talking about, well, the contract policing, is it working? If it's not, let's look at a you know possibly a provincial police force like the OPP, and then the one they have in Quebec as well. And yeah, there was this this kind of uh, hint that what the RCMP are doing with their money, with like full time positions, uh, is is not what they should be doing with their money. Yeah, the the only other thing I'd mention there is that you know this idea of having a provincial police force has been around forever. I think it was one of the things in the the, the famous firewall letter um, signed by Stephen Harper and others. Uh, you know, many years ago uh, to kind of get Alberta, uh, you know, away from Ottawa, uh, Ottawa's influence. Uh, but, you know, I, there's no evidence to me that a provincial police force is going to be any better for Alberta than, a, than the RCMP. I mean, I think that's a false argument that's meant to play on public sympathies. So, but uh, it keeps coming up, keeps coming up in a lot of places. It's interesting that Andrew Shearer has already brought up uh, this notion of when he talks crime, he's talking about cracking down on gangs and stuff. That seems to be more of where the federal conservatives are focusing their energies right now. So I'll be really interested to see if they do indeed turn around and take ownership of that report that they wrote um, for the election. Well, that's actually an interesting point because they actually talk about in this report, they talk about that um, any future funding for the the gangs at least has to be targeted for rural crime as well. Like there should be a section of that goes to to targeting organized crime in rural areas, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, I, I would just say that the... Like under the current initiative that they've got going, I think the really interesting thing that they're doing is, and Keith mentioned this, is targeting the root causes and, and getting really getting back down to 
what is going on? Why are these people reoffending? How are we supposed to make changes to these guys or for these people if we're not actually changing the like the, the dynamics within their communities and within you know what they're doing? And when you say root causes, is it things like addictions, issues, um, mental health supports? Like, yeah, what are the root causes that have been identified so far? Yeah, absolutely. You you, you are talking about those exact things. So you're talking about addictions. You're talking about well, poverty and yeah. family issues. Uh, in some cases, uh, you know, First Nations. Uh, you know, the the impact of residential schools. Uh, in in other cases, it's uh, mental health issues. There, there's a variety of things that go into crime, not just in rural areas but in urban areas as well. And that was and that was one of the things that I, I really took away and from the RCMP that I spoke with was the if we're arresting these people and then they're being sent off to remand and they're away for 6 months and then when they come back into their community and nothing has changed then how like how are we supposed to change what's going on and you you're not going to change it unless you actually put some effort into to fixing these kind of things. Yuri, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks great for Great debut. I think thanks. everyone great great yeah. Yuri. Before no. you go, do you want to leave us with a good stuff recommendation? Yes, I do. I've been wanting to do this for ages. Uh, so <laughs> uh, Good Things in the Gallery for me is a podcast, because I know you all love podcasts, uh, is My Dad Wrote a Porno. Um, Fantastic podcast. Not your dad. Not my dad, uh, no, no. Someone okay. else's dad anyway. Amazing podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hilarious, but it's, uh, we're up to season four, and I would recommend it to anybody who wants a good laugh. Uh, don't listen to it while you're on transit, because you will end up gut laughing and people will look at you really weird uh and i would recommend it just because there's a fantastic interview with one of the like the podcast's biggest fans and that's emma thompson and her interview from her kitchen is one of the funniest things you'll ever hear i'm so excited to listen to that because i've been a big fan of that show for a while fantastic yuri thank you so much for joining us thank you and uh you can send in dave breckenridge who's gonna jump into the hot seat to talk about politics Dave, welcome. Thanks. Dave Breckenridge, my boss. You love Keith's outfit, judging from your reaction when you walked into the room and said, what are you wearing? He's, you know, he's repping his, he's repping his team. Yeah. <laughs> Go. Go sports. Go sports ball. Go, Go stamps. <laughs> okay. So thank you, Dave, for joining us. Yuri wasn't super into talking politics. <laughs> Funnily enough. I want to move on to Robin Luff, who is back this week. Back in her own hot seat, she's in Independent Corner out the back there. Also, we had a little bit of a mystery around who exactly is doing the harassing in the NDP caucus. But Robin Luff uh, had a chat with her. She said she never really expected this to happen. But you know what? She's gone into the house. She's already asked her first question period question. Got quite fiery about it, actually. It was about mobile homes. Keith, were you uh, watching her come back? With bated breath. <laughs> I don't know if bated breath is uh, is the, the term I'd use, but certainly we were on on the lookout for her. Um, she was actually back in Edmonton on Tuesday at a committee meeting. She was, yeah. Uh, but did not actually go into the house that day. Uh, Wednesday was the day. She came up the marble stairs, as you mentioned in your story. Uh, she got surrounded by reporters. Uh, seemed to be in good spirits. And uh, as you said, when she got her question in question period, she was quite fiery about it. And... Uh, I don't know. It seems like she's comfortable with uh, how things have proceeded at this point. She certainly got some uh, validation when it was proven that uh, there were there were at least two NDP MLAs that have uh, behaved inappropriately towards women. So uh, she seems like she's accomplished what she wants to accomplish. I'm not sure that the rest of the world agrees, but uh, she seems quite pleased with herself at this point. She came back in the nick of time to not accrue any penalties, right? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I yep. thought that was interesting. So that was maybe pushed her to come in for that committee meeting on Tuesday, potentially. Yep, that could have been part of it. Oh, we're such cynics. No, uh, she wanted yeah. to get back into taking part of the democratic process. Sure. Clancy. We're all <laughs> she, yeah. she came back because her constituents told her to come back, which well, is yeah, because strange had- to me that they had to tell her that, but that's that's exactly what happened. I don't know. The, it seems like her little footnote on Alberta politics has been made and she will be relegated to the back benches. I don't know how many questions that she'll get through the rest of the session or however much of a winter springish session there's going to be she fades into obscurity she has she i don't know what she's accomplished yeah the ndp said okay there were two mlas who they're not naming who acted inappropriately toward women i don't know if she's done anything more than that oh and speaking of robin luff she's actually going to be here in the podcast studio next week on the press gallery interview um i'm gonna have a chat with her about her protest why she did what she did etc etc so do make sure you tune into that next week and the UCP had a complaint, a workplace complaint against one of their caucus members as well. On that point, Jason Kenny was asked about this and he said, well, yes, we had a work we had a workplace complaint. It wasn't sexual in nature against one of our caucus members. The LAO, sorry, Legislative Assembly Office investigated. It was found not to have merit. And no, I'm not going to name that person because I don't think that putting their name out there and besmirching their good character when they've found to have done nothing wrong is is worth doing, which is fair enough. I think that's a better argument than the NDP not putting out the names of the MLAs who were found to have behaved inappropriately. I, I'm all for transparency and I, I don't think that releasing the UCP MLA's name would be a bad thing in the name of transparency, but they have a better argument than the Premier's been offering on her MLA's. Which is interesting, too, because I've been stopping MLAs. So we've had, obviously, rumours of names. Uh, you know, that is the very nature of the ledge. You hear so many rumours. It's really great. So um, Clancy's been doing this as well. We've just been basically stopping MLAs and saying, hey, are you the one who was complained about? Hey, are you the one that was complained about? We've had some interesting reactions. Feel free to get in touch if you are one of the MLAs that is was complained yes. about. We're happy to chat anytime. The phone is not ringing, Clancy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did want to say we did also look at the um, the policy under the NDP. We had a look at that um, mm-hmm. about kind of what the process is for complaints. And I think this may be all of this kind of the rumors going around and what's been going on with these allegations, I think raises concerns, at least in my eyes, about what are the standard procedures that political parties have at the ledge and um, does there need to be a review of them? Uh, Karen McPherson called for an independent investigation um, over the weekend into kind of how the complaints themselves were handled. And I think those are really valid questions. It's interesting too because each party has a different way of dealing with it. They have a different harassment code. So the NDP has its own written policy about what you do with harassment. So it has spelled out who you go to if you have a complaint, how that complaint will first be handled, how that might then be handled. But there is a clause in there about confidentiality and privacy. And it says, if you do not abide by confidentiality, you can be subject to disciplinary action. So I wonder if that's not why everyone's really clamping down here because some MLAs have just turned around and said no I'm not one of them Trevor Horn I asked him he just flat out said no Joe Cece asked him he flat out said no you asked Darren Billis he said no um others though look absolutely terrified and say I, I can't comment can't comment can't comment and now they seem to have been given a line that is 
everyone saying the same thing because I was kind of like, oh, if we just eventually get to enough of them and enough of them say no, we've narrowed it it's down. It's narrowing the pool. But yes. I, and I think it's, I mean, the political implications for these MLAs seeking re-election, I think, is also, you know, it's something we mentioned last week on the podcast. But I would be frustrated if I was given that party line and I hadn't been accused of anything and I'm not allowed to defend myself. Yeah, I would also be. And I did raise that with one person. I asked Thomas Dang and said, well, are you one of them? And he went with the, with this line of no comment, no comment, and then said, we've done this investigation and that's what we're sticking with, which is now the line that Mason and Sabia and numerous other MLAs have given me the exact same Line And I said to him, well, do you think it's fair that now there's a cloud of suspicion over basically all of the male NDP MLAs? If I was one of the men in caucus who was not the subject of this investigation, I'd be really mad personally. Um, looking at it more broadly, though, I th- I'm baffled that there's not a kind of government wide like for yeah. all MLAs policy. I can understand that parties would have their own internal policies because parties have staff who aren't necessarily employees of the government, don't have a gov.ab.ca email address, that parties need to have their own policies uh, and form uh, members and constituency associations and all of that. They need to have processes in place. But I'm surprised that there's not an overarching policy related to MLAs. Yeah, I the- think there should be if there isn't. Yeah, and that's the thing. The LAO has their policy and the UCP, for example, uses the LAO policy when it comes to harassments and how they're handled. The NDP has its own internal policy and the Alberta Party uses the Alberta Human Rights Commission processes about harassment complaints. So it's this whole jumbled mix of different approaches that potentially should be revisited. Now, um, Premier Rachel Notley was asked about this um, this week. What was it, late last week? I don't know. It's all blurred into one. And she said, well... In response to Karen McPherson asked, it was this week, <laughs> in response to Karen McPherson from the Alberta Party asking for an independent investigation, um, Rachel Notley said, well, that's really beyond the scope of the LAO and it would set a dangerous precedent, particularly for smaller parties having to follow a policy that is set by an external body such as the LAO, which is an interesting way to look at it too. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I mean, that's kind of Notley's argument there, so... I guess we'll see what happens. And I do not think we're going to get um, confirmation of these NDP MLAs unless the complainants come forward to the media and are willing to, like, you know, give us information <laughs> that we can confirm who these who these. But does are. confidentiality in the NDP policy also um, refer to the complainants? Are they bound... Yeah, I think, they, I think they probably would be, yeah. or non-disclosure or, or some kind of rule there. Could they get in trouble if they come forward? Well, if they're members of the public, I, I imagine they could come forward. If they are connected to the party, though, then yes, yeah. then then they could be subject to discipline. Yeah, because the NDP can't discipline you if you're just a random person. From, I, I, you know. I don't think so, no. I mean, the problem with this is that, you know, the main excuse that the NDP is giving for not revealing uh, these two MLAs is that to do so would also reveal the identity of the complainants or potentially mm. reveal the identity of the complainants. And the problem is we just don't know, right? Is that is that a valid uh, excuse? We don't know. We don't know the nature of these allegations. They could have been very minor or they could have been more serious. Uh, it, by just saying the name of an MLA, that's somehow going to trigger, uh, you know, 
an expert, you know, investigation as to who they are. I don't know that it's hard for me to buy that. And we've asked kind of for one or the other either too. Like I, I just want more information obviously as a journalist, but the question is if you're not going to release the names, then why not release exactly what the, what transpired so that we at least have an idea of how serious the allegations are. But on, on your point, Keith, I don't know, because if, if the complaint is something along the lines of, um, MLAX uh, sexually harassed a constituency assistant, then it kind of does out that person, right? In that because, case, it does, yeah. You know, yeah. If, if that's the case, and yeah. I don't know that right. that is the case, then yeah. you do end up outing that person. So depending on the nature of the complaint, I can see how that would be problematic. Yeah, in that case, yeah. But again, if you just name them and say, we're not giving you any more information, but, but then journalists being journalists, we would try and what get happened? information. Yeah, like they will ask, yeah, well, so where did it would. happen? Where was this MLA when it happened? Yeah. Who, I, and I, I understand that. And I understand that, that um, you know, when we cover cases in court related to sexual assault, um, we don't name victims. And mm. so I, it's a frustrating place that we're in as the media as well, because I, you know, I always err on the side of transparency and wanting to provide information to the public. And I personally believe that if we have MLAs who are um, behaving inappropriately in that fashion, that, um, the public has a right to know who it is because people are going to be voting in six months. Yep. And these rumors are just going to keep on rumoring. They are. Is this the nature I don't of think it's going to disappear. Oh, no, I don't think so either. I want to move on now uh, briefly to Calgary. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was down there. Um, there were protests. Pro-oil <laughs> protests. Pro-oil protests. And postal worker protests. It was one big happy <laughs> protest family. There were both groups out there. It was Is it a pro pro oil rally because can you protest something? I think if you're, you're right. I think it, well, well I think they were protesting protest, Trudeau. Yeah. Right. And yeah. protesting, protesting his, what they say is lack of action right. on the pipelines. Right. Yeah. yeah. That was their protest. I didn't know he was I, I I was surprised he he came out here the day after kind of releasing their federal fiscal update. Dave, were you expecting Trudeau to to come out here this week? Timing's it. I assume that they would have had this planned in advance. Now, I don't know if the Prime Minister can exactly be surprised that people in Alberta are upset with him um, <laughs> and may have wanted to show up and protest theme, his it? appearance. It's This is the kind of thing where even the Premier, who had, at one point, even just a few months ago, was all pally with uh, Justin. And now even she's saying, well, you're leaving me holding the bag here. What the heck, man? What the heck? You know, we need action. And the prime minister was trying to talk all nice to Albertans and say, I understand you and I feel your pain. And we're taking the action. This is one of the lines he repeated a couple times yesterday is we're taking the action that that uh, industry executives wanted. Um, but it doesn't necessarily hold water when Alberta is still reeling from this horrible price differential and political leaders, they may not be industry, but the political leaders here are saying we need help. The oil industry may have said, okay, this is our list. We need these things. And we're doing, the feds are doing these things, but the politicians are saying you're not doing enough. And even now for, um, for weeks, and Dave and I were talking about the oil differential at length yesterday, but for weeks now, Premier... Oh uh, yeah, on the 10-3 podcast. Yeah, um, Everyone should listen. Premier Notley has been asking for, um, you know, crude by rail uh, capacity increase. And like even a simple, I mean, it sounds simple, but even that proposal, we've heard nothing from Ottawa on. So it's, it, it's interesting. And um, I guess I can understand maybe why politicians here feel maybe a little bit neglected from Ottawa. He was asked about it directly on Thursday and gave a non-answer. 
Well, and there was some reporting from Josh Wingrove and others of Bloomberg that, uh, in fact, the federal government is leaning against uh, increasing crude by rail at this point. So whatever he does, it's it's going to be, uh, there's no easy solutions here. Uh, but certainly, um, you know, they are in more in control than anyone else in this country. And, uh, you know, I think the protest was partly to show up and say, look, this is a huge problem. And if you don't understand how angry Albertans are at this, in part because of years of feeling that we've been funding the country, uh, we've been giving equalization, uh, paying into that far more than we've been getting back uh, for years. And now at the point when Alberta really needs the help, you're not coming through for us. I think that's where the anger is right now. General feeling of being shafted by Ottawa. Mm. Um, and of course, all this comes off the heels of a report by economist Trevor Toome down at the University of Calgary, right, Keith? Yeah. So that was... Depressing. It, it, very depressing. So, I mean, this Thanks, this, Trevor. this short-term oil problem, price differential, is, is one thing. Um, but his report looks at sort of 20 years into the future, and it, it is quite scary. And it talks about a, a kind of a structural gap, fiscal gap that Alberta has that... Uh, the way we're pointed right now with costs set to increase, particularly healthcare costs, uh, and no particular new revenue streams coming online, uh, no major jumps in the revenue streams that we have, uh, and more volatility in the oil oil sector, that we could be looking at a deficit of $40 billion by 2040. Uh, $40 billion, that's crazy. Our net debt to GDP at that point would be nearly 50%. It's currently at 8%. At that point, we would be paying $22 billion in interest every year. Um, that's, the, that's the value of the health budget currently right now. Um, it's enormous. And of course, it's a disaster if we get to that point. So Toom isn't necessarily saying that this is going to happen. But he says if we don't make some changes and if we don't get started now, both on the revenue side and the spending side, that's where we're pointed. So it is kind of scary. And the deficit right now is $8 billion, right? That's right. This yeah. year's deficit is, a, is pegged at $8 billion. And so that $40 billion number, that is quite terrifying. Yeah. And to put it into perspective, when you talk about debt to GDP, you look at Ontario right now, which is seen by many, especially out here, as being a financial basket case. Their <laughs> debt, to, debt to GDP ratio is 37%. So for Alberta to potentially be looking at that 50% ratio is just, it's horrifying. And I think it, it spells out in the report, especially as we... We approach the election. Um, one of the mes- one of the takeaways for me, at least, and it's not that Toom said this, but I read that report and I think, okay, Rachel Notley and Jason Kenney have to very clearly articulate what their plans are for Albertans. Rachel Notley said she doesn't want to cut. Okay, well, if you don't want to cut, what are you going to do? If you don't want to make these drastic cuts that you claim the UCP is going to make, what are you going to do? Are you going to raise taxes? If you are, spell that out. We don't, we're kind of at a point where we need some honesty. And on the flip side, Jason Kenny, who is, you know, he's no fan of the carbon tax. He wants to get rid of that. Okay, Jason, what other cuts are you going to make? We Albertans deserve honesty out of both sides coming into this election. We wanted, we want some uh, clear examples of um, what you plan to do. And if you don't think that that report is an accurate projection of where Alberta is going to be, and the province may have different numbers, then, then, um, the premier needs to spell out what the province's projections are and how they plan to manage this long-term. It's one thing right now, everyone's talking about getting back to balance, uh, by 2023 or 2024. Okay. That's, that's great. But what about after that? 
I totally agree. And I think, um, yeah, I, I hope we get to see those plans. And it's not going to be enough to hear politicians use the lines of we're going to find efficiencies in X, Y, and Z, because it's a bigger issue than that. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery, in which we recommend things we have seen or listened to or heard or watched or read. I'm using so many synonyms right now. It's pretty amazing. Uh, lately, <laughs> we think you might also enjoy. Glancy, do you want to kick us off, mate? Sure. I'm going to recommend a podcast that is amazing <laughs> um, by NPR. And I'm going to make you a t-shirt for Christmas yeah. that says, I'm going to recommend, recommend a podcast. podcast. I would wear it proudly. <laughs> I've been listening to a podcast this week that has been really fantastic. It's very sad and dark, but an important listen. Um, it's called Believed, and it's about the allegations and eventual now convictions um, brought against Larry Nassar, who was the doctor responsible for the U.S. gymnastics team Mm -hmm. and um, later, you know, was uh, found to have assaulted um, or abused, you know, hundreds of of young girls. And it's just about how accusations came out decades before and the girls weren't believed. And it's kind of talking about why that why that's the case. Keith? Yeah, I'm going to recommend two things. One is that Trevor Toome report. Uh, it's, you know, normally I wouldn't recommend an economist <laughs> report, which <laughs> tends to be quite dense. Night uh, reading. Night exactly. Reading this one is actually well written and, and is in plain language, and most people can understand it. Lots of cool colors and car- charts and graphs. Oh, I love and so me a graph. Yes, yes, exactly. me a pie chart at the pie charts, Keith. Right. So that, that, that's, that's, your, that's your meat and potatoes. Dessert is... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're really selling this. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, I've been watching uh, on CNN uh, The Clinton Affair. Uh, it's a two-part documentary just going back over the the events that led up to Bill Clinton's uh, impeachment or almost impeachment in the 1990s. I was in university when that was happening and probably not following it every day. And I, I was impressed with this. Like, there was a lot of things I didn't realize that were going on at the time, a lot of things I didn't uh, had forgotten. It, it talks to a lot of the main players other than the Clintons, but certainly you know the prosecutors, Monica Lewinsky, new interviews with all of these folks, just very well put together. And I, I found it quite interesting. Nice. I am going to recommend a piece from ABC News in Australia about a little bit of Australian history that I had no idea about until I read this piece a couple of days ago. The title is, He Was Almost Legless. That's a quote. Legless in Australia. Do you guys use that term here? Irish very, people do. I don't very, know. Very, very drunk. Um, how Bob Hawke and a bottle of brandy saved Frank Sinatra from tour disaster. That sounds amazing. It is. I was reading this going, no. What? It's about basically when uh, Frank Sinatra came out to Australia for a tour. At that point, Bob Hawke, who is our former prime minister, this was in uh, 1974, but at that point, Bob Hawke was a labor negotiator and a mediator, uh, which he was very, very good at. And there was an issue. Frank Sinatra came out and was just drunk and then started calling um, female journalists whores and hookers. And then it kicked off massive strike action, which took in everything, and then God, you just have to read it. I just, <laughs> wow. I just, it is, like it is amazing. <laughs> wow. It is an amazing piece. So yeah, I'm going to put a link to that up. It's really something. Dave, take us home. Uh, the piece I'm going to recommend, I can't remember the title of it offhand, but it'll be on the website so you can check it out. <laughs> but it is a piece, uh, ProPublica and Frontline have been doing reporting into uh, white supremacists in the US. And uh, the piece I read this week, I haven't had a chance to watch the Frontline documentary part of it, but the written piece on ProPublica uh, talks about this uh, double murder investigation that was almost botched by uh, investigators with local police and the FBI. Uh, There were two white supremacists found dead in the apartment, and there were two other guys that they brought in for questioning. And one of them basically gave up everything to the cops 
and said, yeah, I'm a member of Adam Waffen and uh, this guy's a member and I killed these guys because I'm trying to leave the group and I'm going to give you our plans for terrorist attacks. And then the other guy's like, I don't know what he's talking about. No, it's good. This our garage. There's no weapons or anything in there. There's These are legal guns and I'm in the Florida National Guard and they kind of let him go and pick up his guns and uh, it was only due to other local police who pulled over this guy and uh, another white supremacist that they uh, potentially averted a horrific gun attack. Wow. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Claire Clancy, Keith Durine, Dave Breckenridge, and Yuri Graney, the other Australian in the newsroom. There are two of us. Lucky, lucky you guys. Uh, (laughs) Join us again this time next week for more Alberta political fun on the Press Gallery.